1 Peter chapter 5. Looking to the words preserved for us in 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 7. I want to preach a message I've entitled, A Practical Remedy for Anxiety. A Practical Remedy for Anxiety. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7 reads, Casting all your care upon Him, that is God, for He careth for you. Casting all your care upon Him, for He careth for you. And it is important to recognize in the reading of this verse that the word care is derived from a Greek word that means distractions. And I find this very interesting, especially as we consider the true meaning of the word distraction. A distraction is something that prevents someone from giving their full attention to something else. A distraction can also be defined as extreme agitation of the mind or emotions. So placing such a meaning in Peter's command, we can read it this way. Casting all your distractions upon God, casting all your agitations upon God, for He careth for you. And the word careth simply means that God is concerned about the one who is weighed down with such distractions. Casting all your cares upon him, for he careth for you. And many Bible commentators strongly believe that Peter's exhortation is being borrowed from what David says in Psalm 55, 22. And I believe they have a valid argument. In Psalm 55, 22, we read David saying, Cast thy burden." Upon the Lord, and he shall sustain thee. He shall never suffer the righteous to be moved. So fusing it all together as one, Peter is saying, casting all your burdens, your worries, your fears, your anxieties upon the Lord, for he careth for you. Our burdens, worries, fears, anxieties, not distractions? Are they not concerns? They are. And this is what Peter is saying as he draws to a conclusion in addressing these people in this letter. He says, as you live the Christian life in this world polluted by sin and filled with injustices, as you strive to walk humbly with God by submitting yourselves to authorities you may sincerely struggle to respond to in a Christ-like way. What you need to do is cast your care, cast your anxieties upon God, knowing that He careth for you. Now, taking these words and examining them in their context, and considering them in the light of what God says about anxiety in the whole of Scripture, I want us to think about in my first point how often the Bible mentions the common reality of anxiety. And beginning here in our text, we find that Christian people that the Apostle Paul or Peter is writing to 
were dealing with troubling circumstances that were causing a great deal of anxiety. Now, let's not forget that these believers have been driven from their homes and communities and scattered across the ancient world because of their faith in Jesus Christ. Peter mentions, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6, that they as a whole are dealing with heaviness through the various temptations they are facing. 1 Peter chapter 1 or 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 12 mentions that it is not an uncommon occurrence for those who do not know the Lord to falsely accuse God's people of being evil doers in their striving to do what is right. 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 18 through 25 Peter reminds Christian servants that they have a God-given obligation to suffer in a Christ-like way even when their masters are cruel and unjust. Are you beginning to see what burdens these people were facing? Just pause for a moment and think about what these people are dealing with. Think about how they are feeling. Think about the real spiritual distractions that have come across their path. These are Christians who have been displaced from all that was familiar to them. These are Christians who've lost their livelihood. They've lost their jobs. These are Christians who are dealing with daily injustices. There are Christian wives married to unsaved men who are wondering what to do and how to act. No doubt there are Christian parents wondering how to provide for their families. And then added to this, we find in verse 8 of chapter 5 that they, like all Christians, are being hunted by the devil, their spiritual adversary, who would love nothing more than to see that they are devoured. These believers that Peter is writing to are living in a real world with a real enemy. You think you have struggles? If we are honest with ourselves this morning, we have to confess that most of us haven't experienced the half of what these people have experienced. You see, the whole of Peter's epistle is about fiery trials and fiery trials producing genuine spiritual and mental, emotional unrest, agitation, and worries. So we see, first and foremost, in this text, the common Dealing of anxiety with God's people. Now, zooming out from this text for a moment, I want us to think about the reality of anxiety under those who Christ taught. The fact that Jesus continually and pointedly called out anxious concerns in his Sermon on the Mount demonstrates that it was something that his hearers dealt with and they dealt with often. Remember Jesus saying on the Sermon of the Mount, Jesus said, take no thought. Translated, don't be anxious, don't be careful for your life, what ye shall eat, what ye shall drink, or where you are going to find clothing. Jesus said, take no thought, don't be anxious about tomorrow, for the things of tomorrow shall take care of themselves. And Jesus said to his disciples, I'm sending you as 
sheep among the wolves, you are going to be delivered up to councils. You are going to be falsely accused of things that you are not guilty of. And when such things happen, Jesus says, don't be anxious, don't be troubled, don't be agitated about what you shall say. So over and over and over we find Jesus lived among a people who were dealing with real anxious concerns. And even those who he was training for ministry. And then zooming out even more, we find in the surveying of the Old Testament scriptures that God's people dealt with anxiety since the beginning of time. Think of Job. Think of Abraham and Sarah being promised of God to have a child in their old age. Think of Jacob deceiving his father Isaac and what feelings this must have created in the family. Think of Jacob's fear of meeting Esau after that situation. Think of Joseph being sold into slavery. Think of his father's feelings, his father's grief after that occurred. Think of Israel suffering under the hand of Pharaoh in Egypt. Think of barren Hannah wishing for a child but remaining barren. Think of David. Think of the Psalms and the mentioning of real weaknesses, real discouragements, real fears, real problems that the psalmist dealt with. Think of the prophets who were hated for speaking truth boldly. Think of Elijah dependent upon ravens to feed him. Think of Elijah dependent upon Poor widows to take care of him. Think of Elijah as he's dealing with Jezebel who wants his head. Are you beginning to see the theme of anxiety interwoven throughout the whole of Scripture? Do you see how relevant the Bible is to our life? Do you see how it meets us where we are, what we deal with in life? Do we know anything about this feeling of anxiety? Well, yes, every week on Sunday, the pastor preaches long while I'm ready to go to lunch. It makes me anxious. Can we relate to those in Peter's day? Can we relate to those in Jesus' day? Can we relate to those who we deem as heroes of the faith in in the New and Old Testament? Are we not constantly bombarded with anxious thoughts? Come on, help me out now. Take the halo off. Are we not constantly bombarded by that what if question? What if war breaks out? What if the economy tanks? What if my health turns for the worse? What if this occurs in my marriage? What if this takes place in my family? What kind of world Are my children and my grandchildren going to live in when I'm gone? What is the next election cycle going to look like? How am I going to manage if I'm so burdened for my son and my daughter? What am I going to do if anxieties, burdens, concerns, troubled thoughts, uneasy emotions, spiritual unrest? All these things are not rare to the believer, but common. 
Anxiety is something everyone battles with from time to time. And this is the first point that I want us to recognize. The first truth outlined for us in our text is the reality of anxiety. And my second point, I want us to think about the ruinous nature of anxiety. The ruinous nature of anxiety. I think it is logical to conclude that one of the primary reasons the Apostle Peter is urging Christians to deal with their anxiety in a God-honoring way is due to the fact that he knows how much ruin it will bring to their lives if they fail to handle their anxiety properly. So let me point out, in my second point, three spiritual hazards that anxiety brings about when we allow it to grow. Three spiritual hazards that anxiety will bring about when we fail to deal with it as Peter is teaching us. Point number one. First, anxiety has the ability to ruin your relationship with God. Anxiety has the ability to ruin your relationship with God. If we give way to anxiety, distractions, when we fail to put them to death, when we fail to submit them to God, mark my words, it will ruin your relationship with God. Listen to me. When you sip on the bottle of anxiety over and over and over, eventually you will become drunk with worry. And when you become drunk with worry, not only will you look and act like a fool towards others, you will look and act like a fool toward God. You will be distracted in your relationship with the Lord. You will become spiritually tipsy. You'll become double-minded. You'll become spiritually confused, unstable in all your ways. If you're filled with worry, if you're filled with concern, if you're filled with anxious thoughts, more than faith, more than the promises of God's Word and the influences of the Spirit, you will grieve and quench the Spirit. Listen, you will rob yourself of God's perfect peace. You will stifle the joy that God wants to bring into your life when you give way to spiritual hopelessness. And this is why the world acts the way it does. Why does the world act like it does? Well, because rather than submitting their cares and concerns and their problems to God, the lost world attempts to drown its sorrows in immoral relationships, drugs, alcohol, pills, and music, YouTube videos, and such. They're dealing, or they're failing to deal with their anxieties properly. Their purposeful rebellion against God and God's ways is leading them to a place of spiritual ruin. They are so, catch it, distracted by the things of this life that they cannot and they will not see God. 
The problem is with them, not with God. You meet people in this world who are just unraveled at the seam. And they're thrown from care to care and burden to burden and anxious thought after anxious thought. There's no anchor for their soul. There's no anchor for their life. Why is it? Because they don't have the Lord. And make no mistake, this too can happen in the life of a true believer. Rather than the believer running their race with perseverance, keeping their eyes focused and fixed on the author and finisher of their faith, their cares have a way of pulling them down off the racetrack and locking themselves in a dungeon of doubt. This is problem number one. Anxiety has the ability to ruin your relationship with God. And then second, anxiety has the ability to ruin your relationship with others. Now keep in mind, we are to live our Christian life, number one, before God, and number two, before men. This is the first and great commandment. So let's think about this practically for a moment. Who wants to be around a person who's constantly negative, selfish, faithless, and pessimistic, who always lives as if the sky is falling? Who wants to be around someone who's continually saying, did you read the most recent news article the other day? Did you see this? Did you see that? Oh no, what are we going to do? My husband, my wife, my children, my family. I have to call my friends. I have to set up a counseling session. I have to pace the living room. Oh no. They're constantly agitated. They're constantly troubled. They're constantly cynical. They're constantly stirred up. And with this comes complaining and murmuring. Raise your hand. How many of you would like to be around such people? Oh, come on. No? Well, let me ask it this way. How many are such people? You see, such a spirit hampers the joyful spirit the church is to have, and it discourages those who are new to the faith. Anxiety has the ability to ruin your relationship with others. Some of you need to think about this. It will ruin your relationship with the church family. You will come into church and spiritually speaking, you will stink. So it's no wonder people keep their distance. Another problem. It will ruin your relationship with your physical family. There are reasons why people don't invite family over for Thanksgiving and Christmas. I'm just being real practical here. Oh no, they're going to come and they're going to complain about the politics. They're going to complain about their problems from beginning to end. They'll never ask a question about how you're doing. It's just the Eeyore mentality. Poor me, poor me, poor me. It will ruin your relationship with your neighbors. There's a reason why your neighbor runs from the car to his front door while you're outside. Oh, no. Don't want to get caught in conversation with them. I'll be kept for 50 minutes. It will ruin your relationship 
to the lost world. This is third. When you profess to know Christ and you do not properly submit your cares and concern to God, it will allow the lost world to doubt the existence of the one you claim to believe in. It will cause them to question the sincerity of your faith and it will deter them from seeking the one who has the ability to save their soul. Come on, pay attention now. This is why Peter is speaking on this subject. Let's put it in the context. Peter knows what he's talking about. Learn from his experience. When Peter was filled with anxiety, when the mob came to arrest Jesus, what did Peter do? Peter said, I'll take this into my own hands. And he cut off the ear of the servant of the high priest. And let me just remind you, Peter didn't do one of these things. You just stay still while I just carefully get your ear here. Peter was aiming for his head. And Malchus must have dipped and just caught his ear. God in his grace. Imagine if Peter did get his head. Nonetheless, what did that do to Peter's testimony? Think about it. Come on. Here are lost people coming to Jesus and his disciples who've been learning that Christians should love their enemy and pray for those who despitefully persecute them. And now they are leaving saying, you say you ought to love your enemy, but your desire is to kill your enemy. You think Peter ever went with a gospel tract to Malchus and said, would you read this and come to church? I don't want that phony baloney religion. And then as Peter was warming himself by the fire after that occasion, and people began to poke, are you not that one who's a follower of Christ? I recognize your voice. Surely, yes, you, you are the one. And what did Peter begin to do? He began to curse and to swear, saying, I know not the man. What caused him to do that? His failure to cast his burden on the Lord. Do you see the ruinous nature of anxiety? Do you see the peril it causes your relationship with Christ? Do you see the problems that it can cause toward the unbelieving world? Do you see what discouragement it can bring to other believers? I mean, who wants to come to a church where its members are thrown into a frenzy with every breaking news headline that is thrown at them? If we say that God is sovereign, we must act like God is sovereign. If we say that God is our refuge and strength, the very present help in our times of trouble, we must act as if it is true. So we've considered first the common reality of anxiety. Can we all agree that this is a common reality that people deal with? And then number two, we consider the ruinous nature of anxiety. It is a spiritual poison that will kill you if not handled properly. It will kill the joy of the church. It will kill the effectiveness of reaching others for Christ. 
Now in my third and final point, let me give you the exclusive remedy for anxiety. And look at it in the text again. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7. Peter says, casting all your care upon God, for he careth for you. Now, dividing these words into two parts, let me explain its meaning. I fear that oftentimes with well-known and commonly repeated statements like this one, that it's easy for us to mindlessly quote it without giving serious meaning to its full implication. Listen, you know and I know it's easy to meet a fellow brother or sister in the Lord, somebody who's downcast and depressed. They're seriously struggling with real anxieties. And we just offer up a quick, well, you know what you need to do? You just need to cast your care upon the Lord. It's like put the quarter in and expect it to work. It's easy for a pastor, for a preacher to tell a congregation that what they need to do during times of distress is cast their burden on the Lord while assuming that the congregation knows what this looks like practically. So I want to answer that question. What does it mean to cast our care on the Lord? How is this done? Most people think you just pray a little prayer, as if you do before you go to bed. Most people think just repeat some words to God and everything will be okay. But I want to suggest to you that what Peter is teaching us has three practical implications. Number one, casting your care upon God involves humbly acknowledging that you cannot handle the problems of life on your own. Let's start there. What does this look like? Casting our care upon the Lord. It looks like, number one, humbly acknowledging that you cannot handle the problems of life on your own. And connected with this involves believing that God is God and God alone has the ability to help you with your anxiety. What does it mean to cast our care upon God? It means that we begin by acknowledging that we cannot find a solution to our problems in ourselves, in others, or other things. It begins by recognizing that without God's intervention, we will crumble. And then second, it involves humbly submitting ourselves entirely to God. So first, it requires faith. Believing that God is God. It requires believing that God has the power and the ability to help us. And that God will help us when we cast our care upon Him. But then we must come to the point where we actually turn our cares over to God by yielding ourselves to His purpose and will. This was Christ in the garden. He fell on his face saying, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass for me. But nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. I can't do it on my own. You need to strengthen me. You need to sustain me. This is too hard. Help me, Lord. I'll do it. If this is what your will is, help me. So let's Take this and think about it as it relates to 
those that Peter is speaking to. So let's say, for instance, you are a slave under the authority of an unjust master. That's 1 Peter chapter 2. This is reality. In the congregation, there are Christian servants, Christian slaves belonging to unjust men. What does it mean to cast my care upon God in this situation? It, mean, it means believing that God has a purpose and reason for you being where he has you and knowing that God has the ability to use it for good. It means that you strive to live for Christ in the difficulty of your situation by remaining faithful to the Lord, submitting to his will. This is what we find in Joseph. What was Joseph's hope? What was Joseph's motivation? What was Joseph's sustaining light? Here it is. Men mean it for evil, but I know that God means it for good. Joseph's sustaining light was, I don't know how this is all going to work out, but I know that God has a reason God has a purpose, so I'm going to obey Him despite my troubles. I'm going to do what God requires of me regardless of the injustices done to me. I'm not going to allow my feelings, my circumstances, or my fears to direct what I do. I'm going to allow God's Word to direct what I do. This is the attitude of Romans 8.28. And we know we're confident in the fact that God is God. And God is reigning and God has a purpose behind everything. All things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. And this spirit is the opposite of Abraham. Abraham taking matters into his own hand, going into Hagar. Rather than humbly submitting himself entirely to the Lord's will... Abraham felt as if he had to take matters into his own hands. He felt he had to help God out. And he fell in the same trap when he told Abimelech that Sarah was his sister, not his wife. What was Abraham's problem? His problem is he did not cast his care, his burdens, his anxieties on the Lord. God would have cared for him. But Abraham came to the point in his life where he doubted the care of God. Therefore, he took matters into his own hands. And listen, Abraham didn't become an atheist. He didn't cease to believe that God existed. The problem lied in the fact that he didn't trust God to help him. And I'm submitting to you that when we fail to bring the reality of God's sovereignty into our situations, we act like practical atheists. We act as if God cannot take that which is crooked and make it straight. We act as if God is dead. This is why Peter's bringing this to our attention. Can God's people go about living as if God is dead? God forbid. So what does casting our care upon God look like? First, it looks like humbly acknowledging that we cannot handle the problems of life on our own. Second, it looks like humbly submitting ourselves, catch it, entirely to God's will and God's keeping. And in third, it looks like turning away from all worldly 
gratifications. This is point number three. We're never going to find true joy in the Lord in the midst of our trials if we rely on other things to bring us peace. Remember the word for care that is often translated as anxiety means distraction. And I don't think I need to establish the fact that this world is full of distractions. And I'm not simply talking about distractions that are inherently sinful, but distractions that can be, bring a real hindrance to one's spiritual life. When I say it's needful to turn away from worldly gratifications, I'm not merely talking about drugs and alcohol and sexual immorality. I'm also talking about those more common temptations that we sometimes give way to. Listen, I'm talking about trying to ease our mind of anxiety by running to our friends and complaining to them for hours rather than running to God in prayer. This is practical. When a crisis hits your life, are you more prone to pick up the phone and run to flesh or to fall on your face and cry out to God? I'm talking about wanting endless counseling sessions with some professional counselor while we fail to meditate on God's Word day and night. That's a false hope of security. I'm talking about numbing our mind with television, movies, video games, and sports. Many times, the most tempting thing for a Christian to do during times of stress, anxiety, and trouble is to endlessly scroll through the Facebook feed. It's our escape. We do nothing. Or we seek to find satisfaction from the realities of the world by sleeping all day. Or trying to comfort ourselves by overeating. Come on. These things are unhealthy distractions. These things will only cause greater anxiety. It certainly won't help you overcome it. Listen, anything and everything that keeps you from seeking God passionately, however harmless it may appear, ought to be viewed as your enemy. Well, I'm just dealing with so much stress and so much turmoil and so many burdens. I need to ignore the Lord's day and ignore the Lord's church and ignore the teaching and preaching of God's word. And I just need to go to the beach and breathe some fresh air. That's a distraction. Well, I just need to be around my family, my physical family rather than my church family. That's a distraction. It won't help with true spiritual anxiety. You might put a temporary bandage on it, but the womb is still underneath. Listen, if you want to cast all your care upon God, you must deal with yourself and deal with those things that easily plague your soul honestly and ferociously. Just call it out for what it is. It's a distraction. It's unhealthy. It will tear you down. It's a poison. You need to get rid of it. You must strive to turn from those physical things you're tempted to lean upon to bring you spiritual hope. This is what it means to keep ourselves from idols. That's Bible. That's the end of 1 John. Little children, keep yourselves from idol. An idol is anything else that brings satisfaction except for Christ. 
false satisfactions. So let's recap. If you want to properly deal with your anxieties, if you want to cast your care upon God, you must, number one, recognize that God is God. You must recognize that you cannot handle your anxieties in your power and in your strength. And then you must humbly submit to God's sovereign purposes as you are dealing with them. Bring God into the situation. Remind yourself of Romans 8.28. And then you must turn from trusting in other things to bring you lasting comfort, safety, and satisfaction. Now, having looked at the meaning of the exhortation, I want you to notice the motivation of the exhortation. Peter says, casting all your care upon him for, what reason? For he, the one you're casting your care upon, cares for you. What is it that motivates a believer to cast their anxiety, their burdens, their worries upon God? Simply put, it's God's gracious, undeserved love. We cast all of our cares upon Him because God ever loves and cares for His own. We cast all of our care upon Him because we are His people and the sheep of His pasture. If we are in Christ, we are His bride. And as His bride, He loves us. And when our heart breaks, His heart breaks. Our troubles become His troubles. Even when it feels as if nobody else in this world cares, we can rest assured that God cares. And I think the most powerful illustration of what Peter is trying to teach us here is found in Acts chapter 12. Do you remember the instance of Peter being detained and put in prison at the command of Herod after James, the brother of John, was killed with the sword? There in Acts 12, we read of Herod, the king, stretching forth his hand to vex certain of the church. He succeeds to kill James and then proceeds further to take Peter to do the same thing. Now, put yourself in the place of Peter for a moment. One moment, one day, you are faithfully doing what God wants you to do. And the next moment, you're arrested, you're thrown in prison, and you are scheduled for the chopping block. Put yourself there for a moment. This is reality. This is not a fairy tale. This is not Aesop's fables. This really happened in Peter's life. Taken. Arrested, thrown in prison. For doing what? For doing the will of God. How would you respond? What would be your thoughts? What fears would press on your heart? Would you not be tempted to think, as we always do, why is this happening to me? What did I do to deserve this? How is my spouse going to be cared for? Remember, Peter had a mother-in-law so it's likely he had a living wife. What ripple effects would this have on others in the church? All right, now take that and think about it from the church's perspective. Think about Peter's arrest and his coming martyrdom from the church's perspective. What concern do you think the church was dealing with in their hearing of John dying and Peter being taken? 
What questions do you think were swirling about their minds? Now, in our thinking about their troubling circumstances, their temptations to be anxious, I want you to think about how Peter and the church actually responded to their anxieties. In Acts chapter 12, we do not read that Peter was bitter, angry, and violent toward Herod. We do not read that he was bitter, angry, and violent toward the soldiers who arrested him or the guards who were watching him day and night. In Acts chapter 12, we do not find Peter demanding his one phone call out of jail. We do not find that he was devising a plan to escape. We do not find him bribing the guards to get him out. Do you know what we read? We read of Peter peacefully sleeping between two guards like a baby. He was bound with chains and having the best night of sleep ever. And do you know what we find of the church? We do not find them picketing outside in justice towards Christ, in justice towards Christianity. We deserve better. We don't find them anxiously calling Perry Mason and the lawyers. We don't find them running to the local news to get people to feel sorry for them. We read in verse 5 that as Peter was Kept in prison, prayer was made without ceasing of the church unto God for him. This is what it means to cast our care upon God. Taking our cares and turning it into prayers. Submitting them wholly to the will of God. Come on, think about this. Somebody cuts you off in traffic and you're troubled in your sleep all night. This man's about to die. How could Peter sleep during such a time? Peter knew. He was confident in the fact that God was good and God was caring for him. Peter knew that if he died, he would go to heaven and God would take care of his family. How could the church gather for prayer during such a time? They knew that God loved them. They knew that God would take care of him, Peter, and them as a church. And this is the same response of Paul and Silas in Acts chapter 16. Here they are taken, thrown in prison, beaten. What do they do? Nothing wrong. Preached in the name of Christ. And they pray to the Lord and praise the name of Christ. Paul and Silas were being anxious for nothing. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, they let their requests be made known to God. And when they did this, the peace of God, which passes all understanding, kept their hearts and minds through the power of Jesus. This is biblical reality. This is truth that meets us where we are. So let me ask you this morning, what cares are pressing on your heart? What concerns keep you up at night? What worries? 
What emotional and mental things keep haunting your soul? Why not cast them to the Lord? Why not surrender them to God? Come on, why not let them go? Some of you are holding on to things when you need to cast them to the Lord. Some of you are holding on to your children a little bit too much. But what if, 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 what if? Lord, deal with them. I'm not going to worry about this anymore. What did Luther say? Pray and let God worry about it. Well, what about our nation? What about the economy? What about my retirement? Let it go. How am I going to provide? I don't know. But God has always provided. Let it go. You see, that's the illustration. Casting all. Peter was a fisherman. To cast a net. You cast it all in the water hoping to catch fish. You don't hold on to half of it. That's not going to bring the other half around to catch the fish. No, cast it all on the waters and trust God for the increase. And then let me conclude by asking those who are among us who are anxious about death. Those of you in here, you're troubled at the thought of dying. You're agitated that God will not receive you if you turn to Him. If you're without hope, if you're without God this morning, this text of Peter applies to you. If you're trying to find good in yourself, if you're trying to be good and you keep failing, if you're burdened by the thought that you've done too much wrong toward God to forgive you, if you're worried about what others will think if you surrender yourself to God, let the words of Christ encourage you. Jesus says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. That's the care. That's the anxiety. That's the burden. That's the distraction. Jesus says, you come to me. All you are trying to work your way to heaven. You're trying to say enough prayers. You're trying to go to enough church services. You're trying to give money to church to earn your way to heaven. Come to me and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. For I am meek and lowly in heart and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus is saying, if you cast your care upon him... He will give you rest, spiritual rest, eternal rest. If you believe on Him for salvation, He will be your light. This is the promise of all promises. This is the remedy for sinful souls. You can know the peace that passes all understanding when you give up all effort of trying to save yourself and you cast your care upon Him alone. That's it. That's all you need to do. The only thing you bring to Christ as it regards your salvation is your sin. You come to Him as the publican saying, 
God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I'm not seeking to justify myself by saying, well, I'm not like other people are. I pray, I tithe. I'm not an adulterer. I'm not a fornicator. And you just put these self-righteous robes and these self-righteous robes weigh you down and blind you. That's not the way of salvation. That's not what it means to be a Christian. The way of salvation, the way to become a Christian is to humble yourself in the sight of God, recognizing that you are altogether sinful, that you are altogether rebellious against God. You deserve His justice and wrath. You're not better than others. And God awakening you to the reality that if this is not dealt with, I will die and go to hell. If you've not experienced that, you've never been saved. I'm telling you, the gospel is God bringing you to a place where you are burdened about your sin. And the only remedy you have is to turn to Christ. If you've never been broken before God, if you've never been anxious about dying and going to hell because of your wickedness against God, I fear that you are still outside of Christ. You need to be broken like the prodigal son coming to the end of yourself saying, I've sinned against God. I've sinned against others. I'm not worthy to be called a child of the Father. And then you turn, you repent, humbling yourself, asking for God's gracious healing. Has there been a time and a place marked by a change where God has humbled you, brought you to the end of yourself, You've seen that there's no good thing in your heart and you've cried out to the Lord, Lord, save me. And then after that time, God brings a lasting, loving relationship with Jesus Christ where you are continually now casting your care upon Him. Whereas before, you thought you could handle life on your own, but now as a Christian, you are constantly in prayer and submission through obedience, casting yourself at God's feet saying, not my will, but thy will be done. I want what you want, God. That's the evidence of a true Christian. Constantly casting yourself upon God rather than taking cares, concerns into your own hands. Are you in Christ this morning? Come on. Let's stop playing church. Let's stop with the, well, I come and I sing the songs, I listen to the pastor preach passionately, and I go on living like I always do. Come on, I'm trying to help your soul. Is Christ just a tradition to you? Or is he someone you actually turn to in time of trouble? Let's stop talking about it. Let's start living it out.